Hi, I'm Maya Nowens, WIWS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization, and host of the WIWS Sound Strategic Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to four new colleagues at the WIWS Europe office, which has recently opened in Germany. Amid the crisis in Afghanistan and ongoing power shifts in the international order, the WIWS has expanded its footprint to Berlin. The WIWS Europe office will serve as the central hub for the Institute's engagement with Germany and other European powers, as well as the business and expert community. It'll bring a unique international perspective on questions of geopolitics, geoeconomics, conflict and defense provided by an international research team, and will bring the very best of strategic thinking to the debate in Berlin. And our experts in today's podcast will showcase some of their innovative research projects covering topics from European strategic autonomy to addressing the challenges posed by new technologies through arms control, questions about the defense innovation models of European countries and industry, and last but not least, what champagne has to do with statecraft and foreign influence operations. Joining me are Professor Ben Schreer, the Executive Director of the WIWS Europe Office, William Alberk, the Director of Nonproliferation and Nuclear Policy, Dr. Simona Sare, Research Fellow for Defense and Military Analysis, and Tornike Gordadze, the Senior Fellow for Statecraft and Influence Networks. So Ben, William, Simona, and Tornike, welcome to the show. Ben, let's start with you. What makes the new office in Berlin unique? What will it focus on and how will it also work with the business community? We are um, truly excited to be opening up um, the new IISS office uh, in the heart of Europe to really focus on some of the hard geostrategic, geopolitical and geoeconomic questions um, that are of significant relevance for Germany, but also other European powers, because this is the IISS Europe office. And so we will also be looking forward to working with European powers other than Germany. We really bring a truly international perspective on these questions to Berlin. We have already 19 colleagues with 11 different nationalities here in the office. We can also draw, and this is also something which is really unique, on the international expertise of colleagues in our other four offices, which are in London, Washington, Bahrain, and Singapore. We also bring the IISS unique convening power and the ability to bring together senior policymakers and other key stakeholders for major events, but also confidential exchange on a whole range of issues of relevance to Berlin. What we also will bring, and that also makes it unique, is that we will really bring a new international facts-based strategic analysis to Berlin uh, and Europe. We will work on a range of hard security issues, such as statecraft and influence networks, the future of alliances, cyber and space capability, military capability analysis, and arms control. But I think this is really important to stress we are the IISS Europe office, which means we will work on issues of relevance for other European powers But of course, we will also have a strong focus on issues of relevance, uh, direct relevance for Germany. Last but not least, the IISS brings a long tradition of working with the business sector, including defense companies. And we have been consistently providing facts-based analysis on military capabilities, geopolitical due diligence, and geoeconomic risk assessment. So we are really excited being here. And I think we bring something unique to the Berlin community. We bring something unique um, to European um, security and defense. And I think this is precisely the reason why the German government and the German parliament has decided to fund us. 
And what are some of the major geopolitical and geostrategic challenges that you just mentioned for the post-Merkel Germany and Europe that the IISS Europe will seek to research on? There are a whole range of geopolitical and geostrategic challenges of great significance for post-Merkel Germany, because for the first time since 16 years, we have a change of government. And this German, new German government will find itself in quite a different um, strategic environment. But also Europe is, is finding itself in an increasingly challenging um, strategic environment that simply require new, new answers and that require fresh thinking. So some of those big challenges and questions include, you know, how will German and European defense policy continue to adapt to the emerging new security order? So, for instance, the reordering um, happening uh, in Central Asia um, in the context of the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan, the reordering occurring in the Middle East um, and the Gulf um, in parts of Africa, and also, not least, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. These are significant trends um, that are accelerating and that have major implications for the German government, but also for um, European security and defense. And we'll be looking to providing um, some fresh thinking in how to understanding those challenges, what they mean, how we might um, effectively respond to it. Another big question, of course, is the China challenge for Europe, the China challenge uh, for Germany. China is now um, truly um, extending its strategic reach, including into European security. This is a trend which will only continue, which will only accelerate, and it requires new answers. It requires also new answers from whoever um, will govern Germany following the 26th September um, election. A third major question that we will be looking to, to address addresses the question of the relationship between climate change um, and armed forces. So, for instance, how can the Bundeswehr, how can other European militaries best adapt um, to climate change? change, including through restructuring the way they operate, but also rethinking the way they need to be equipped. That means what kind of technology should they use in 2035. Another big, big question for German, but also European security regards emerging technologies. And so we will be looking at questions such as how does the German Bundeswehr deal with the challenge, but also the opportunities potentially provided by hypersonic weapon systems, but also other fully automated um, systems. And we'll be looking to uh, provide fresh ideas into this, always bringing in um, perspectives, um, not just from, from other European countries, but also from other regions. So from the Indo-Pacific, making use of our office uh, in Singapore, for instance, and the excellent work being done there. A final major strategic question that we will be looking at will be questions of um, the weaponization of space, because this is another um, serious challenge for the international order. Um, it is a serious challenge for Germany, who, for instance, recently stood up a space command. But how do we, for instance, find some ways to controlling um, the weaponization of space? And if we can't fully control the weaponization of space, how do we make sure um, that we have some mechanisms to, for instance, avoid um, unwanted encounters 
and incidents and accidents um, in space. So these are just a few of those uh, critical strategic questions for Germany and European powers that we will be dealing with and in cooperation with our other offices in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, in London, in Washington. We will engage with those questions through a range of activities, providing innovative data-driven analysis that provide fresh thinking um, in order to find uh, solutions, um, as well as working very closely with government and non-government stakeholders, something that the IISS has been doing very successfully since 1958. Now, William, arms control also has been a heavily debated topic over the last few years in Europe and in Germany. The IISS's non-proliferation and nuclear program has been moved from our Washington to the Berlin office, and I understand that the focus of the program is shifting somewhat as well. So what is the significance of that move, and what changes are you making, and what do you hope to achieve? The significance of the move from Washington to Berlin, I think, is it's a very important demonstration of how IISS values this topic. In Washington, there are a lot of think tanks who have traditionally dealt with arms control from a U.S. perspective, sometimes bringing in European experts, but really focusing on the traditional U.S. idea of arms control and how that's going to move forward. So moving the arms control function to Berlin is a big deal. This provides IISS, which has all this extraordinary capability in terms of military analysis, in terms of regional expertise and other thematics, to bring together its resources and to talk about this topic through the lens of European voices, European perspectives with a transatlantic flavor. I mean, obviously I'm an American, I'm coming out of directing arms control at NATO, um, but I understand the value of European voices and European perspectives, but also the IISS global reach as well, the other regional offices. This is really going to provide, I think the Berlin office with a boost. It's gonna provide the IISS portfolio with a boost. And I mentioned arms control because I am trying to shift the program from more of the traditional 1990s focus on nuclear nonproliferation or WMD nonproliferation in the context of cooperative security. I think we're looking at right now a world where great power competition is back, where cooperative security solutions seem less and less possible, less and less likely where even the UN Security Council seems unable to agree upon general principles for how to maintain peace and security. In this realm, we're going to have to look at how international strategy has changed and how great power politics are going to affect Europe, how middle powers in Europe are going to use their alliance relationships to ensure security and peace, and really to work with Germany, with other European voices, to help educate them as well as to hear from them, to have their voices heard, as well as to bring us all up to a common understanding of the threats that we face and how we all in Europe and the transatlantic area and globally can work together uh, to improve peace and security. I think it's a huge win for, for Germany. I think it's a huge win for IISS and hopefully it'll be to the benefit of all of Europe as well. Well, William, let's look at uh, great power competition in a little bit more detail. The U.S.-Russian strategic stability talks seem to be advancing with the possibility of further arms control talks, including strategic and tactical nuclear weapons, advanced missiles, outer space, and cybersecurity. What are the implications for NATO, the EU, and European security of all this? There's a lot of 
very important talks that are going on right now between the US and Russia coming out of the summit between uh, Biden and Putin that happened earlier this year. They agreed to strategic stability talks, and now it's a matter for their staffs to set up exactly what the topics will be, uh, the format and the timing. They were under strict instructions to get it done quickly. Uh, we'll see how they do. From what we've heard preliminarily, as you pointed out, they uh, it sounds like they're going to talk about the next stage in nuclear arms control, which uh, for the United States has to include non-strategic nuclear weapons, weapons that aren't already covered by the New START Treaty, um, as well as thinking about what's going to follow the New START Treaty, because remember, we only have uh, less than five years for that treaty before it goes out of force. But we also have to look at the other things that affect the strategic stability equation, including uh, missiles that can be nuclear or conventional or either. We have to look at um, peace and stability in outer space. We have to look at cybersecurity. So it's it's still a little bit up in the air as to what the different subgroups within the strategic stability talks will cover, but we think those are the areas that will be in place. These are all areas of huge concern to uh, European partners, and this is an area where the Europeans can actually contribute as well. We can't think of this just in terms of the US and the Russians are going to go away and solve all these issues. All of these issues have a stake for uh, the allies of the United States, not just in Europe, but also in uh, East Asia as well. So being aware, consulting with the United States is going to be important, but also educating ourselves about what these topics mean and what the impact for security and peace in, in Europe and in other regions uh, will be. For instance, in outer space, you think, well, you know, maybe my country doesn't have any satellites in space. That's becoming increasingly untrue. More and more countries have the capability now to put assets into space. So what the rules are for those objects in space becomes more and more important. If a country is developing the capability to disable other countries' satellites, you can see how that would be really, really important. And for countries that rely on global positioning, uh, communications, both civil and military in space, an accident or an incident in outer space could be perceived as something leading to war. It could be seen as an escalatory move to try to blind another side's uh, ability to see things, ability to detect um, missile launches or to conduct military operations, um, or just you know knock out uh, civilian communications or internet communications, all these kinds of things. So what the rules will be for outer space are very important. There's a UK initiative in the United Nations. Um, I think more countries need to engage with to try to define what types of behavior are acceptable for space, kind of to develop rules of the road for outer space. This is something where Europeans have a huge interest and a huge voice. So uh, I'll be interested to try to organize uh, workshops, bring together experts here and try to not only um, bring everyone together to find out what they feel, but also to, to get them to feel like they have a voice as well and to do the research that provides them with um, with answers, with, with impartial information on what the facts of the ground are and how they can engage. Uh, it's the same thing on cybersecurity, um, cyber warfare. What are the rules for cyber warfare going to be going ahead? You have a huge stake with the European Union and with NATO and trying to figure out how international law is going to impact uh, cyber operations in the future is, is a huge area and an area where any country with a stake in cybersecurity is going to have a say. So again, to provide them with the information that they need and the engagement venues uh, that are helpful. Um, in terms of nuclear weapons, understanding what is verifiable in arms control is going to be really important because ultimately um, 
verification in nuclear disarmament, in nuclear limits, uh, even in nuclear numbers is going to be important in the U.S.-Russia relationship. It's going to be important in the NATO relationship. And, you know, if we ever get China into arms control, uh, understanding how they're going to engage and what it's going to mean. China doesn't have uh, um, any experience in nuclear arms control, but they are a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. They have obligations. Uh, we've heard more European voices say that China has to engage in arms control in the future. But exactly how should they engage? Um, it's fine to say that they should, but trying to define more of what China's role in future arms control negotiations would be would be very important. And I, I'm very excited to hear um, from Europeans what their opinions on that are. And then how do we engage with China positively to bring them to the table? And not just in nuclear arms control, but in risk reduction, in uh, freedom of navigation, in issues in the South China Sea, and, and other issues as well. This has huge stakes for Europe because you know, freedom of navigation and transportation and trade are, are global issues. They're not an issue you can wall off and say, well, that's Asia and this is Europe. We have to bring these audiences together and really have a conversation about the future. Absolutely. And of course, China is increasingly prominent in the areas of new technology. So how do you think Europe can help shape the debate regarding the threats posed by emerging and disruptive technologies, including, as you mentioned, outer space, but also bioengineering, hypersonic weapons, AI and autonomous weapons? How do you see the IISS Europe office injecting fresh ideas into these critical debates specifically? IISS has some unique capabilities here. Again, because we have a big focus on the defense sector and on defense industry, see, for emerging and disruptive technologies, even the title can be a little bit of a misnomer because some of these technologies are going to be very important for the commercial sector, for legitimate defense purposes, as well as some will just be disruptive. But this is a, not an area where we can just go in with traditional arms control and bans. I mean, this is an area where we're going to have to think, what are the industry interests? What are the commercial interests? What are the civilian interests? What, what are the legitimate defense interests? And then what are the military uses that we think should be out of bounds? And so it's not going to look like old school arms control with a treaty that people sign. It's going to look more like the development of common international law, uh, in some cases, rules and norms. And in some cases, really just understanding what we expect from each other as nations, what we expect non-state actors to do, how we can work together to ensure that the technologies are being used for the betterment of mankind, to increase security in, in some cases. And in other cases, to try to find ways to make sure that certain behavior is not accepted uh, and that we work together to prevent that kind of behavior from happening. And so again, this is not something for just two or three countries to talk about. This is the kind of thing that, that any country with an interest in these technologies, again, for civilian or for defense uh, or for whatever purposes, is going to want to have a voice. And you know, by bringing that sort of impartial um, analysis and judgment and bring together all the different stakeholders, IISS can do some excellent, excellent work and really help the Europeans engage in a, in a consistent and, uh, and hopefully useful way. Simone, you look at the analysis of European military capabilities, and in the context of new emerging technologies, you see that this will be a core part of what the IISS Europe will focus on. So can you talk a bit about what you see as some of the major challenges for German, NATO, and EU strategy in this area, and how the office will contribute to addressing some of those? What we're trying to do in the um, IISS Europe 
office is have an applied conversation about the uses of a wide variety of emerging and disruptive technologies in defense. And with respect to that, we're looking both at the way that member states in NATO and the European Union are seeking to integrate artificial intelligence, are seeking to uh, invest in research of quantum um, sensor technologies, space technologies, and others. We're also looking to understand the added value that institutions like NATO and the EU can bring to the defense innovation conversation um, and the added value of projects that NATO and the EU can support with respect to the integration and adoption of emerging and disruptive technologies that complement each other, complement what individual nations are doing, and also ensure an optimal level of interoperability between our forces, which is really the the core of uh, what has sustained both these um, institutions so far and has ensured solidarity among the among the um, allies and the members. In terms of specific challenges um, that that we're seeing uh, with with emerging and disruptive technologies. I'd point out um, three or four of them. The first ones would definitely be um, the technical ones, um, whether that has to do with maturing certain types of technologies. For instance, uh, we're looking at um, European allies that have had a level of uh, uh, vulnerability with respect to independency, with respect to digital technologies more broadly. So looking forward, artificial intelligence is definitely one of the uh, areas that they um, need to mature. We're looking at acceleration of adoption of other types of technologies that perhaps um, are already strong or or are benefiting from significant investment over the past uh, four or five years. I'm I'm talking here, obviously, about uh, big data analytics, uh, cloud and edge computing, um, all of these and, and sensor technologies we've seen uh, bring in a lot of investment and interest uh, over the past years. Finally, I think that there's also a, an issue to consider here with respect to uh, perhaps um, giving a little bit more thought, especially on the European side of, of um, the application in defense of certain technologies like biotechnologies where Europe has a real strength in, in the civilian sector, but, but perhaps less so in the defense one. And then finally, there is an issue of considering investment in technologies that Europe does not have, such as hypersonics, and th- that are really at the core of international competition right now. So this is a class of technologies that, that Europe um, does not uh, currently possess. These are all key questions for, for European security moving forward. Another um, aspect that we're trying to do is obviously funding challenges are are there. Um, this is nothing new in the European security debate, uh, but we're trying to move the conversation on emerging and disruptive technologies and defense from the investment gap uh, towards uh, what areas we should actually jointly uh, focus 
focus our investment so that we get the most added value and uh, we are able to um, integrate these capabilities rapidly into our military capabilities. Finally, and I think that uh, William referenced this earlier, there are challenges, significant ones, I would say, um, with ensuring proper governance for these technologies as in uh, when they are integrated into our military capabilities. And this has to do with decision-making. And I I think that moving forward, a lot of questions will revolve around what are the specific requirements that these new technologies uh, bring to the decision-making process, what are some of the um, new um, aspects we need to consider in terms of getting ahead of the conversation and not letting ourselves uh, be trapped by by uh, you know speed requirements or volume of information that comes our way from the use of uh, of artificial intelligence and autonomy. Now, as Ben Schreer, the executive director of the IISS Europe office, mentioned, the IISS Europe office will also work closely with industry in Germany and Europe. And the analysis of military capabilities, and especially the ones that are uh, on the frontier of development, as you just mentioned, uh, requires perhaps a closer examination of the role of defense industry uh, and examination of the defense industry in and of itself. So what opportunities do you see for your work at the office uh, to closely work with German and European industry partners moving forward? I think that uh, industry is a natural partner for us, not just uh, because of the enduring legacy that IISS has uh, working with industry, um, but also because in this um, overall challenge uh, related to emerging and disruptive technologies, I think that um, defense industry and tech industry more broadly are, are definitely interested to take part in the conversation and, and shape it uh, as well. What, what I see in relation to European defense industry is certainly a different position that we've seen with, uh, for instance, our allies across the Atlantic, where there is a really strong uh, impetus to uh, work in different ways, in more agile ways, if you want, uh, with with governments in terms of the adoption of um, particularly digital technologies and software-based capabilities. In in Europe, I think that the reflection is um, innovation itself is not an issue, but rather access to critical materials, to raw materials, uh, has been one of the obstacles that we we are seeing. Um, so, so the input from from industry has been very strong on this side, pushing governments to definitely uh, help in that. The other aspect that has been consistently underlined by industry has been the predictability and sustainability of budgets, particularly on the research, uh, development and innovation side. And I think that we're seeing already uh, an improvement in the situation through NATO developing dedicated structure, the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic that is backed by uh, um, a venture um, capital fund um, that will support innovation by engaging directly with startups. I think that that is uh, certainly one key aspect of of the conversation that needs to be developed. I think the European Union is following in those footsteps with the Commission 
having launched over the past two years at least six such venture uh, uh, capital funds that invest in different types of emerging and disruptive technologies on the market and are trying to attract far more funding uh, from from uh, the capital markets um, to help them uh, back up startups that are very promising in this sense. So I think that industry is already um, trying to be part of the conversation and move the conversation towards um, towards a different way of working with governments. In terms of what the IISS uh, Europe office can offer, I think uh, we, where we're trying to contribute to the conversation is to help understand uh, what different countries' needs are in relation to industry. I think that it's not a blanket approach. Not every government engages with industry um, the same way. And I think that both at the national level, but also through NATO and the EU, uh, these uh, needs need to be better understood uh, so that uh, instruments, such as uh, the ones I mentioned from NATO and the EU, are better tailored to, to address these, uh, these needs. Now, Dornemike, William already mentioned that we're in a uh, era of great power competition. And it is, of course, in this new era of strategic competition between free liberal democracies and authoritarian or semi-authoritarian states like Russia and China and others that we see the application of traditional and non-traditional means of influence and control to undermine Western liberal democracies' ways of life. So what do you see as the key challenges in this space for Germany and Europe? And how can the IISS Europe office help understand these challenges? Yes, there are many challenges, and uh, IISS uh, is uh, not only interested in hard security, as my colleagues just uh, mentioned, but also in uh, soft security and uh, uh, in all these attempts from the revisionist countries and states to influence Europe. What's happened chronologically is that after a decade of unilateral domination of the West and the ideas such as the end of history and the, the victory in the Cold War, this um, revisionist states emerged uh, and uh, their uh, practices uh, uh, have developed. Uh, and at the beginning, at the first stage, these countries were uh, uh, trying to uh, protect their own uh, zones uh, uh, of info, geographical zones, and uh, talking about cultural relativism and saying that democracy and liberalism is just uh, limited to the uh, cultural uh, realm of uh, uh, Europe and Northern America. But since, uh, let's say, a decade or so, this revisionist states moved to another level uh, of challenge, and now the battlefield is coming to Europe and to, to the West in general, and in Europe in particular. That's why IISS is um, European office is interested in, in studying these challenges and trying to identify uh, the vectors these uh, revisionist uh, authoritarian semi-authoritarian states are using uh, try to understand also their efficiency because now we have already um, sufficient time um, uh, to observe what among these these uh, tools or vectors were efficient or, and those who were not efficient, the the tools and vectors that fall under um, simple tactics and those who are more uh, directed uh, against uh, uh, and have a serious implications in terms of uh, uh, fighting against our models, etc., etc. Another challenge is to uh, understand the methodology because the methodology is uh, quite different from the period um, of the, the Cold War. 
during the Cold War, the revisionist uh, camp, let's say it was mainly the Soviet Union and then the communist camp, tried to uh, uh, seduce the West uh, uh, with the lack of information and with the control of the information. Now the lack of information and control of information is impossible. So the methodology is to overwhelm with the information and to provide as many as much uh, information as possible. And sometimes, and very often, by the way, this information is contradictory. How, uh, for example, these, these revisionist states are on, on one side supporting uh, the, the political parties in the West that are against immigration at the same time they're also pushing and using immigration uh, as a tool uh, in order to, to weaken uh, our democracy. So the methodology has uh, uh, changed with uh, the use of new technologies and it's completely different situation as during the compared to the to the period of the Cold War. So this is also one of the challenges. The IISS will try to um, analyze uh, uh, the differences between the providers or different, different uh, state actors who try to um, impose their views and to, to influence uh, our democracies. There are uh, significant uh, differences between, let's say, uh, Russia on, on one side, uh, China, uh, and to uh, use more semi uh, semi-authoritarian states like Turkey. Uh, we have um, um, different approaches they have of economy, uh, of investments, of corruption, uh, etc. So this is also uh, among our our goals to uh, uh, to see what are the the, the differences um, and um, uh, how to uh, also how to identify the um, and how to increase our. Um, resistance and uh, um, resilience towards these practices. Absolutely. And as you said, rightly so, when it comes to the challenges posed by countries like China, these are often multidimensional and, and various in nature. So to what extent do you see new synergies between the private sector, governments and think tanks like the IISS in contributing to solutions for these challenges? So the governments, uh, the private sector and the think tanks can only complement each other and help each other in uh, first understanding the situation and then also to uh, set up uh, the different uh, ways to, uh, uh, to, to resist the, the, the current challenges. Governments have another uh, temporality. They are influenced by, by the electoral cycles and the business is... Uh, uh, motivated by invest by development and and profit, so the um, the advantage, let's say, in quotes of of, of the um, of the think tanks is to have um, time for reflection, to identify uh, uh, identify the problems and to study them in in depth. When it comes to the uh, to the business, especially and to private sector, um, uh, here in Europe and particularly in Germany, there is this strong uh, liberal idea of um, using economy or trade uh, to, um, uh, uh, to to attract, to develop relations, and then to uh, engage uh, the countries in, in order to uh, to um, uh, to diminish uh, the, the conflict. And this is a very old liberal myth that uh, comes from uh, from I don't know 18th century and uh, Montesquieu's uh, um, sweet commerce, and that the, the commerce and trade has uh, this. Um, a characteristic of uh, uh, softening uh, conflicts. But so far, um, uh, what we see here now uh, since uh, uh, the, the, a decade or, uh, or two is that uh, these practices did not really 
work. And these practices resulted in uh, more influence um, of uh, revisionist states and authoritarian states on our um, uh, in our uh, part of uh, of the world, um, uh, accepting uh, their terms of uh, uh, or their rules. Uh, just one example that recently uh, uh, occurred: uh, Russia um, uh, decided to uh, um, uh, to apply the term of champagne only to a uh, to uh, to uh, to um, uh, the wine sparkling wines produced in Russia, and the, the French company, the, the biggest company um, uh, exporting uh, the champagne to Russia, accepted the, the 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 rules that the Russians were were proposing. So this is something that um, uh, we should uh, see uh, very carefully and uh, uh, try to help the private uh, sector to uh, avoid this kind of. Uh, Vulnerabilities. On the, on the other side, uh, this uh, kind of relations um, also uh, exported uh, corruption to our to our countries. And uh, quite often, instead of uh, softening political or geopolitical relations with with these countries, uh, we see now uh, a very strong networks of. Uh, clientele uh, or developing in our countries in their support. Uh, and uh, when uh, our private companies are involved in this kind of relations and are involved in corruption, uh, this makes them uh, more uh, vulnerable and uh, the risk is, is growing. Uh, many of them uh, maybe have difficulties to understand how uh, strongly authoritarian states intervene in private sector and what is the um, level of the crackdown these countries um, uh, are, are uh, having on the, on, the, on the private sector in their own own countries. So this, uh, uh, the private sector should be also interested in, in our work and uh, uh, consider uh, the uh, analysis that we are proposing and the solutions as something important to decrease the risks and uh, the vulnerabilities, especially um, even more for uh, mid-sized or small enterprises that are uh, maybe uh, even more vulnerable in, in engaging uh, investments or, or trade with, the, with this type of states. Well, Thornike, it's never a bad day when you end a podcast speaking about champagne. I'm going to thank you, Ben, William, Simona, and Thornike for coming on the show and talking a little bit about your areas of expertise. And we look forward to following your research. We have a rich lineup of research topics that we'll be following in the months to come. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.